All right, well, good morning. Good morning to everybody here. And that sounds like a lot of people when you say everybody here. It's not a lot of people, but we do have people in the room. And uh, so it is so good to just see faces and that I just miss seeing in person and just being together. But I'm so thankful. You know, you, you learn so many things during seasons like this. And you really come face to face with just how sufficient God's, God's grace is. No matter the season or the the inconvenience or the hardship, God's grace is always plenty. And so God is able to uh, continue doing what he needs to do here at Midtown for his glory. And, and uh, we'll just keep trusting him for that. But we're going to be in Colossians 1 as Jason uh, set us up for and did a very nice job and recapping and getting us back to the table here. But we're Continuing looking at the power of prayer, and as you're looking at this prayer from Paul in Colossians chapter 1, next to Christ's prayer in John 17, this is one of the finest that you'll encounter in Scripture, and it is a blessing and a challenge to read and meditate on and and glean from. But depending on the person, when it comes to prayer, prayer is either a tremendous privilege or it's a giant chore. I mean, that's really where we're going to land on prayer. It's either something that we get to do or something that we feel we have to do. And what determines which one you you or which one you you land on, it comes down to your relationship with God. It comes down to your personal walk with Christ. And if you have an intimate walk with him, then prayer is going to be a great privilege. Because prayer affords you the opportunity to have intimacy with Him. But if you don't have an intimate walk with Him, then prayer will absolutely feel like a giant chore. It'll be like the chore that you put off until the very last minute. Where you say, well man, you know, I've, I've put this off for days, maybe even weeks, but I'm at a point now where I have to do it. And the reality is, when it comes to prayer, that's exactly what it is. For too many believers, we wait until something happens, something difficult, some hardship, some loss, some inconvenience, where, okay, well, now I have to pray. Man, I've been putting this off, putting this off, but, man, I got my job, I got laid off, or or whatever's going on, and so now here I am. And when it's that, when that is the approach... Well, then not only does prayer feel like a giant chore, but it also feels like a giant waste of time. There's no power. There's no focus. There's no no passion. There's no fervency. There's no faith. It's just an assignment, no depth. And so praise God for the Apostle Paul. God used him to teach us many things. And he was faithful to that. Obviously, we know God used him to give us two-thirds of our New Testament that we hold in our hands this morning, and we thank God for that. But one of the things that I think we gloss over that God used Paul to give us and teach us was the importance of prayer and how to do it. When you read the Pauline epistles and you you read Paul's writing, it becomes evident that he was a man of prayer, that he was a man who prayed without ceasing. And this is why Paul was so successful and why he was so fruitful in ministry. Because his ministry was not dependent upon himself. It wasn't wasn't rooted in the power of Paul. It was rooted in the power of Christ. And because he was a man of prayer, it showed that he was a man of great dependency. He depended on Christ to do what only he could do. 
And so because Paul longed to know the power of his resurrection, he was also certain about the power of prayer. Because in Paul's mind, if Jesus could raise from the dead, what couldn't he do? What couldn't he do? What was too great for him? And that's your first blank. If Paul, in his mind, if Jesus could raise from the dead, what couldn't he do? And when you have that perspective, when you have that view, when you have that intimacy, that passion with Christ, that's exactly how you view him. And that's exactly how you view any situation. And that's exactly how you pray. You pray from that perspective. And that's exactly what Paul did. Because listen, how we pray for others speaks volumes about our faith in Christ. How we pray for others speaks volumes about our faith in Christ. Because all of us know people who are in situations who we are desperate for the Lord to work and for Him to move in their life to bring about things that are to His glory and honor and to their edification. And we know that we can't change it, we can't force it, we can't make it happen, but because we long to know him, Philippians 3.10, and the power of his resurrection. We come to him with that type of prayer, that type of faith, that type of dependency. And then this is what is born out of it, a prayer like this. But here we go. The smaller our faith is, the less we pray. And when we do pray for others, our prayers reveal that we really do not know him. And the power of his resurrection. Paul desired to know the power of his resurrection. And the way that Paul interceded for the church at Colossae and for others says that he did. And examining this powerful prayer of Paul here in this opening chapter of Colossians, there are seven words that, that really leap off the page, that really, that really highlight or show us exactly what Paul was trusting Christ to do in the lives of these believers, he uses the word filled, walk, pleasing, fruitful, increasing, strengthen, giving. Man, that's rich. And as we begin to break these down this morning, it just begins to show the fullness of what he was trusting God for. And many have taught this prayer from the perspective of this is a great guide for how we should pray for others. And I agree, except that if you don't have the relationship with God that Paul had, then all this becomes is a powerless script. If you don't long to know him, if you don't long to know the power of his resurrection, you can read this and pray it verbatim, but if you don't have the faith and you don't, if you're not rooted in Christ, it will be to no avail. But when you walk with him, no doubt you will pray for others like this, and it will be a tremendous blessing in their life to the glory of God. But in verse 9, we see that Paul prayed and he desired. That's very important because Paul just didn't pray, but the Bible tells us that he, this was his desire. In other words, this was not just some typical standard thing that Paul was doing because it was his responsibility as an apostle. No, this was on his heart. This was a burden. So this wasn't just a prayer, but this was prayer and desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding now this is very important because what you'll see in this prayer is paul uses the word knowledge twice but in both times 
both times, neither had anything to do with information alone. It wasn't just knowledge, as we're going to see. Now, if anyone was knowledgeable, it was the Apostle Paul. He was a brilliant man. We know that. But his prayer and desire was not for them to just simply possess information. And that's very important for us. Notice that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, this is very important. The will of God always, always refers to what God would have us know and do. We have to understand that. The will of God always refers to what God would have us know and do. Mark 3.35, Jesus said it this way, For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. In order to do the will of God, you obviously have to know it. But it's not enough just to know it, you have to do it. So the will of God, as far as God is concerned, is always about what God wants us to know and what he wants us to do with that. Paul phrased it this way because Gnostics, they prided themselves and they proud themselves to this day on just possessing information. They pride themselves on being the smartest person at the table. But that's not where Paul was coming from. Paul desired for the believers at Colossae to be filled with the knowledge of his will. This is also very important. When something is filled, that means that there is no room for anything else. When something is filled, there is not room for anything else. Nehemiah was a man who was filled with the knowledge of God. And look at his attitude in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 3. He says, And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work, that was God's will, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah knew exactly why God had brought him back to Jerusalem. He knew exactly what that work was that he was supposed to be doing and his attitude was, I don't have time to come down from this wall to mess with you all who are trying to hinder God's will. That's it. That was Paul's heart here. The believers at Colossae were not to allow the Gnostics to distract them from knowing and doing the will of God. And one of the takeaways here is learning to identify, listen, this is very important because Obviously, we want to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to steward the gospel. It's very important. But one of the things that you will learn in dealing with unbelievers is you do have to learn that there are some unbelievers who simply want to waste your time. All they want to do is argue and debate, I mean, back and forth, back and forth. And you don't have time with that. I was in Price Chopper not long ago, and... Uh, engaging in a conversation with a man, and of course we're having a conversation, so I'm looking for that moment where I can just transition to the gospel, and I did, and, and minutes after that, I realized that he was a religious Gnostic. And so he would have been content to stand there and talk with me, or actually debate with me, for an hour or longer if I had time. He was so passionate about this that he even told me where he lived, and invited me to stop by any time. Listen, it, it's, it's <laughs> when it comes to the gospel, it, 
it's not about who's the smartest or who knows the most. It's about what Jesus Christ did. And is this person, are they saved or unsaved? And if they are unsaved, are they open to receiving the gospel? If not, well, then I've got to move on. But I'm not going to sit there and just spend hours debating with someone. And listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 14. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Keep going. <laughs> Who's up? Who's next? <laughs> hey, they've heard the gospel once. Praise the Lord. Who needs to hear it now? The command was not to stay and argue and debate and convince them. And by the way, when it comes to the gospel, just so we're clear, I never feel any pressure or obligation to convince or persuade anyone of anything. Not my responsibility. I don't have to do that. The Bible tells me in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God. <laughs> the gospel is the power of God. I don't have any power. I don't have to be eloquent or brilliant. I just have to believe what the Bible says. And if I, so the gospel is powerful. It just needs to be presented. And I'm not responsible if someone rejects it or accepts it. No, I just need to present it. And that's it. Okay? But at some point when you're going back and forth with people and no one is giving ground, it becomes about pride. You know, who, who, who knows more, who's the smartest, and on and on and on. But Paul did not also, he also did not envision a collection of believers sitting in the church at Colossae who were just filled with information, just filled with knowledge. It's been said in corporate America, I've heard this before, maybe you have, but it goes like this. In corporate America, it, it, it says that people are paid or compensated based on what they know. So the more that you know, the more educated that you are, the more credentialed that you are, that means that you are in a better position to make more because of the knowledge that you possess. Well, that philosophy might work on Wall Street, but it doesn't work with God. Because with God, what matters as much as what you know is what you do with what you know. That is always God's bottom line. God's bottom line is never our possession of knowledge, how much we know. God is always as focused, as preoccupied, if not more, with what we're doing with what we know. I can never shake the fact that a believer, <laughs> and it blows my mind, that a believer can be saved for five years and growing in their knowledge of God's Word, and what you'll find is you'll see them actually ex exhibiting a spirit-filled life you can see the fruit of the Spirit taking root in their life. Whereas a believer who's been saved much longer and knows ten times more is negative, discontent, sour, cantankerous, miserable, <laughs> difficult, nasty. I mean, they know more Bible than, than this person who's been saved five years. They, they have forgotten more than this person knows. But the problem is their obedience doesn't match the volume of what they know. This is always the outcome when knowledge doesn't have an outlet to obedience. So Paul's desire and prayer was for them to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom. And spiritual understanding, if you're keeping score, 
what ought to be clear by now is the book of Proverbs because it talks about these three topics significantly, does it not? Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. But in verse 9, Paul talked about that. He, began, he, he talks about all three of those. What Gnostics miss and what they miss is that, and this is very important, is you can possess knowledge but not wisdom. And that's a dangerous thing. You can possess knowledge, but not wisdom. And only the fool, listen, only the fool believes that knowledge is chief. Only the fool. It is only the fool who believes that knowledge alone is sufficient. Consider Proverbs 4 verse 7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Not knowledge. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing. It is chief. You have to have it. Wisdom, listen, is life or death. It absolutely is. In every chapter of this short epistle, Paul talks about wisdom. In every chapter. Knowledge deals with information, but wisdom deals with perception. It's how we see things. It's how we view things. Another synonym for wisdom is discernment, which is the ability to judge properly. That's wisdom. After Nehemiah sent word that he was not coming down from the wall, he received counsel from a prophet to take refuge in the temple. Given the spiritual attacks and hostile working conditions, that would have sounded good to him in the flesh. Except Nehemiah was not a priest and would not have been able to take up refuge in the temple, and he knew that. But notice his response. It's very wise. Nehemiah 6.12, And lo, I perceived wisdom, that God had not sent him, sent this prophet, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. Nehemiah perceived, he discerned, that God was not in that council. That's wisdom, folks. Wisdom is the ability, amongst anything, it is, to, it is the ability to discern what God is in and what God is not in. What is of God and what is not of God. That's wisdom. Listen, wisdom involves perceiving how God and Satan are both at work. That's wisdom. You are able to perceive what God is doing and you can discern what Satan is doing. That's wisdom. That is wisdom. And you have to know that wherever God is at work, so is Satan. Whatever God is doing, Satan is always lurking to counter, to somehow defile, distort, mess up. This was happening in Nehemiah's ministry, and it was happening at Colossae. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, listen, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That's wisdom. You can't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Listen, someone who lacks wisdom will be ignorant of the fact that Satan is at work and they'll be as ignorant about how he works. Paul said, he, said, he told the church at Corinth twice, he said to them twice, he says, be not deceived. 
The same thing to the churches of Galatia. Be not deceived. Paul did not want believers to be ignorant of how Satan works. We have to be wise. Listen, the lack of wisdom, the lack of wisdom guarantees deception. It does. This is one of the biggest cries of my heart for my children. Uh, it still is, but when they were younger, I remember when they would do something foolish, I would ask them, is that wise? Was that wise? Because I want them to see that, no, that was a foolish thing that you did. I'll never forget this. I remember like it was yesterday, and, and forgive me if I'm repeating this, but it was a very hot day in August in the summer here in Kansas City. Our summers, as you know, are stifling hot, and we had a lot of errands to get done, and we had gone to the supermarket, and you know how it goes. you got to go to Walmart, and you got to go to Sam's Club, you got to go to Aldi, and... At least that's how Lord Morgan does it, and I'm just a chauffeur, right? So um, it's just a hot. Ken would have been, I don't know, seven, something like that, and he was just thirsty. You know how kids are. When they're thirsty, it's a national emergency. Like, man, give me something to drink now, I'm going to die, right? So, so here we are. We're at Walmart. Man, this is the last stop. We're going to go home, get everybody hydrated and fed. And so we're walking down an aisle, and there was... There was an open Mountain Dew can on a shelf. And he and it was one of those things that you know how it's happening in slow motion, like you're like, okay, this is happening, but no no no, this is not happening. No, this really is happening. I mean, like all this is happening in like a half a second. And he grabbed it and put it to his mouth, and I think I set a world's record for how fast I I closed the gap between he and I to grab that can. And right there in Walmart, guess what? That's foolish. What are you doing? You have any idea what's in that can? Come on, man. Give me a break. You're not going to die. Just be patient, right? I mean, so we had to have a we had to have a man-to-man, heart-to-heart. That's dumb. That's foolish, right? I want him to understand. Listen, son, you got to be wise. And so that led to a conversation about what people do with, with cans. <laughs> Beyond just drinking soda out of it, right? You can only imagine what was in that can. God forbid. But that's, that's the cry for my, for my children. I want them to be wise. Everything that looks good is not good. And you have to be wise. Finally for today. That you might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So from the phrase, spiritual understanding, here's what we can take away. That there are two kinds of understanding, very clearly. There's natural and there's spiritual. Right? Those are two kinds of understanding. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural man is the unsaved person who thinks and understands from a carnal or physical perspective. That's natural. And so God's word to them is like a foreign language. It it may as well be Greek. And I've heard unsaved people say this more than a few times, and you probably have too. And it goes something like this. I've tried to read the Bible, but I can't what? I can't understand it. 
Okay? I've heard that, and you've heard that. And the bottom line is, is you cannot approach the Bible from a natural perspective exclusively. In other words, you don't read it like a Sports Illustrated. That is usually a clue that you're dealing with a lost person. Because the Bible must be spiritually discerned, which means you must have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God to spiritually discern it. Now, because we're saved, which means we have the Spirit of God in us, we can and we should be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, here we go. This is very important, though. When you compare Scripture with Scripture, here's what you come to. This is critical. Spiritual understanding is always indicative of spiritual maturity. Spiritual understanding is indicative of spiritual maturity. Right? That's very, very important. Listen to these passages. 1 Corinthians 2.15 But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judge of no man. In other words, if you're spiritual, you're able to judge or discern all things. 1 Corinthians 3.1 And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, mature, but as unto carnal, immature, even as babes in Christ. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Colossians 3.16, which we will get there. Let the word of Christ dwell richly, Dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And again, we know that the, 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 the twin passage to this is Ephesians 5.18. But spiritual understanding is always the output of wisdom. And understanding ultimately determines what we do with what we know and what we have discerned. Our understanding now is the last step in that, in that we make the right decision. And someone who is full of spiritual understanding is someone who is going to be filled with the Spirit of God. That is the key. If you're going to, if you're going to be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, you are someone who is going to walk in the Spirit of God, which was Paul's desire for them in verse 9. Because listen, and this is heartbreaking. It's true, but heartbreaking. Believers, believers, those who are saved, those who have the indwelling of God's Spirit, can be devoid of spiritual understanding. If they choose not to walk in the Spirit, which means this, when a believer is devoid of spiritual understanding, what that means is, is they're going to think, speak, and behave like a natural man. And that's tragic. That's tragic. One of the issues that makes this prayer so powerful for us to pray, to follow, at least for me, is to envision God answering it. 
in the lives of the people we're praying for. What would your life look like? What would my life look like? What would your spouse's life look like? What would your children look like? What would your brothers and sisters in Christ look like if you prayed like this for them? Man, that's exciting. If you prayed, God, would you please fill my wife? Would you fill my children? Would you fill Midtown? Would you fill Life Fellowship with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding? I believe God wants to hear that, and I'm certain he'll answer. Can we pray? God, thank you for what you have given us so far here in Colossians chapter 1 as we are coming back together as your people. God, your word is so, so good. And I thank you, God, for how it, it clarifies and how it instructs and guides and leads. And so, Father, I just thank you for what you've shown us here. And, God, there's so much more to tackle and look at, and we look forward to it. God, whatever we've heard from you from this today, God, I do pray that we would seal it in our hearts and minds and, and that, Father, we would, we would uh, take it and, and, as Rich said yesterday, walk with it, God, that it would be with us, God, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.